Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. Today, we're going to be looking at the 2021 Amazon original movie, Being the Ricardos. Written and directed by Aaron Sorkin, Being the Ricardos stars Javier Bodem as Desi Arnaz and Nicole Kidman as Lucille Ball. It tells the story of the drama on and off the set of Lucy and Desi's insanely popular TV show in the 1950s, I Love Lucy. To do that, Being the Ricardos pretends to have almost documentary-style interviews with I Love Lucy lead writers in the present day as they reflect on what things were like during a particularly strenuous week while filming the show in 1953. The reason I say it pretends is because it's pretty obvious that Being the Ricardos has actors playing the part of present-day writers, telling Everything from when Lucy and Desi met to how they created I Love Lucy and their marital struggles off camera. To help us separate fact from fiction in the movie, I'll be joined by Michael Carroll. Michael is an editor and author of numerous books about Lucille Ball, including Lucy A to Z, the Lucille Ball Encyclopedia. Before we chat with Michael, it's time to set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, and that means one is an all-out lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one. Desi really did make William Frawley pledge that his drinking wouldn't be a problem with his performance. Number two. Lucy was playing a burlesque girl beat up by her pimp when she first met Desi in 1942. Number three, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz eloped six months after meeting. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right. Now it's time to connect with Michael Carroll about the historical accuracy of being the Ricardos. Before we dive into some of the details about the movie, if you were to take a step back and give being the Ricardos a letter grade for historical accuracy, what would it get? Gee, I would probably give it a C minus overall, maybe even a D or D minus in certain areas. The screenplay makes point of noting that at one time, Lucy aches to be known as a serious actress up there with Crawford, Davis, Hayward, whatever. I'm just not sure how true that is. Lucy wanted success in her film career, sure. An audience that would respond to her performance like any actress, but when she got one in the right medium, television, she soared like no one else before or since. In film, hardly any director or producer knew what to do with Lucy. Number two, a conspicuously bad error, historical error. Lucy sprints home to tell Desi she got the part of the big street, one of her big dramatic roles. The movie that could put her up there, and this is the movie talking, with Judy, Rita, and Betty. And Desi goes, what Judy? And Lucy answers, holiday. The problem is the big street was released in 1942. And Judy Holliday did not have a screen presence then and wouldn't until 1949 with Adam's writ. Um, hello, research. <laughs> that seems like a simple thing that it's in, all in dialogue that they could fix that. At, at the film via RKO's head of production, who is 
the one firing Lucy after her big street success, which again, I don't even know if that's true, keeps throwing Judy Holiday at Lucy's face. And it just wasn't true. It never happened that Holiday was getting roles Lucy could have played. Dramatic license is one thing, but this is a biopic and it's supposed to be factual, right? Not so much. Yeah. Also, number three, throughout the movie, it is shown that Bob Carroll Jr. and Madeline Pugh, Lucy's wonderful writers, have an argumentative relationship. I've never heard that suggested in all the years that I've researched and written about what I call the Lucyverse, including all the creators I've spoken to, like editor Dan Kahn and director William Asher. And in their surviving film interviews, uh, Carolyn Pugh seemed very much at ease and comfortable as colleagues and writing partners. They look like they have a very nice relationship, and it's odd to see Marith Madeline constantly sniping at Bob as if he's not worthy of being her partner. And finally, Lucy always intimated that she had the most fun during the rehearsals and filming of I Love Lucy, that that was her forte. She especially loved rehearsing with Viv, Vivian Vance. From this film, you'd think this was the most argumentative set ever. Everybody. Lucy and Madeline. Lucy and Desi. Desi and Jess Oppenheimer. Lucy and Jess. Lucy and Viv. Viv and Bill. Madeline and Bob. Jess and Madeline and Bob at each other's throats all the time. Where was the love that created this legendary sitcom with the word love in the title? I mean, that's a great point. I mean, I guess they went after the dramatic uh, tension or whatever, but those characters, I don't think, were portrayed the way the real people were. Sure, there were times where there was tension and people didn't get along, especially Bill and Viv, but I mean, I never heard of, like I said, Madeline uh, thinking so little, apparently, according to this film, about her writing part. Hmm. Yeah, and that's a great point. The movie's timeline does bounce around a lot, but I wanted to kind of start with a natural beginning to the story, how it shows Lucille and, and Desi meeting. Uh, according to the movie, Desi Arnaz led his orchestra at Ciro's while Lucy was under contract at RKO doing some minor roles. And as the movie shows it, they met, seemed to fall for each other right away. They eloped and seemed to be really happy, at least at first. How well did the movie do showing how Lucy and Desi met? Horrible. <laughs> As you might be able to tell already, I wasn't real fond of this movie. Um, As the older versions of their characters are, and this is in quotes, interviewed to describe how Lucy and Desi met, there's another major error. Desi first laid eyes on a heavily made-up Lucy in the RKO commissary right after she'd shot a big fight scene with Maureen O'Hara for the 1940 movie Dance Girl Dance, one of her best movies. Whereas Linda Lavin, as Madeline Pugh, the older Madeline Pugh, says the first time Desi saw her, she was unrecognizable because her character, a burlesque girl, was beaten up by her pimp. That is actually a quote by Desi describing what Lucy looked like the first time he saw her, not how she got her fake black eye. Desi, what she said was she looked like a $2 whore who'd been badly beaten. That shoddy research on Sorkin's part and Aaron Sorkin. The story is there for anybody to fight in a zillion places. So Lucy and Desi first saw each other at the RKO commissary. Desi was there to shoot the movie version of his Broadway hit, Too Many Girls. When Desi later saw Lucy as she really appeared and as they acted together in the film, and interestingly enough, the first scene they share is Desi's character fainting because Lucy's co-ed is so drop-dead gorgeous. It was, as they both have said, love at first sight. They eloped uh, six months later in November 1940, and they were happy at first, but many things conspired to put stress on their relationship. Some were typical showbiz things that affect couples. Others were 
inherent to their own personalities and the way they acted. But Lucy's career being bigger than Desi's, the fact that he was away much of the time touring with his band, and Lucy has famously said, you can't have kids over the phone. And the fact that they weren't able to have children, which Lucy dearly wanted until 10 years into their marriage. I love Lucy beginning with the pilot in the early 50s and the show being to CBS on becoming TV's biggest hit ever. Plus the two children they'd had by then certainly extended the marriage, made it more viable. Because let's face it, how could they break up? They were America's couple. Yeah, they're kind of in the spotlight for sure. Oh, totally. Well, you mentioned Lucy's career there, and I wanted to ask, because the way the movie kind of portrays this, at least when, when they meet, um, there's a line of dialogue in there where Lucy talks about how you know she's a contract player at RKO, and her career has reached cruising altitude, as she says it in the movie, and she seems to be at peace with that, again, according to the movie. Can you give a little more historical context, I guess, around Lucy's career up until she met Desi? That's uh, not the right way to put it. She was an RKO contract player. They were saying is thought that Lucy, but if what she had gone as far as she could, and she was kind of content with that. No, that's very wrong. Lucy came to Hollywood in 1933 as a Goldwyn girl, chorus girl. Um, she was immediately employed as a chorus girl or extra or bit part player, and then graduated during the years to supporting parts, most likely due in large part to her attitude. She would do anything asked of her if it would help further her career. Like, for example, being the only one of 12 chorus girls willing to take a pie in the face in the 1933, and I use this in quotes, comedy, Roman scandals, which, so the legend goes, prompted legendary director Busby Berkeley to say to star Eddie Cantor, get that girl's name. That's the one who's going to make it. And her best first, her first best part of RKO was in 1937, Stage Door. And ultimately, she was playing leads in her work, beat pictures. The fact is, Lucy's presence elevated every picture she was in because she was that good and that noticeable. And ultimately, as I said, no one knew what to do with Lucy. She was a pretty woman who could play comedy, do slapstick, and excel at drama. And apparently the studios thought they had all the great actresses they needed as Lucy was pegged as a second-tier star and given parts that didn't begin to scratch at her talents. At RKO, she finally had reached her personal zenith, or as far as the studio would allow, so to speak. She filmed no less than 14 movies between 38 and 1940, eventually rising to the top in respectable B-plus or even A-minus pictures, and ending her tenure at RKO with two legitimate classics. I think I mentioned both of them already. Leading Rules and Dance Girl Dance from 1940, which is now preserved in the Library of Congress's National Film Registry as a movie of consequence, and 1942's The Big Street, with sometime date Henry Fonda, proving Lucy could emote with the best of them as a nasty, crippled nightclub singer. I love this one review of that by James Agee in Time Magazine. Quote, Pretty Lucille Ball, who was born for the parts Ginger Rogers sweats over, tackles her emotional role as if it were sirloin and she didn't care who was looking. So it was, it was the big street that caught everyone's attention, especially the folks at MGM, which is often referred to as the Tiffany of movie studios. They offered her a contract, which was a definite step up. So she wasn't cruising, you know what I mean? Yeah. And granted, MGM mostly didn't know what to do with her either. They cast her as herself in decent roles, but as for that, as a brassy chorus girl or in flashy technicolor cameos in films like Zigfield Follies and Thousands Cheer. But no matter, Lucy met 
and again learned that Calderon was silent film legends Harold Lloyd and Buster Keaton, also languishing at MGM at the time, sadly underused, who taught her about comedy, that was Lloyd, who directed her, I think, at one film, and how to use props, that was Buster Keaton. Oh, and one very, very important thing also happened at MGM. The resident hairstylist, Sidney Guilleroff, decided Lucy's, quote, hair was brown, but her soul is on fire, unquote, and gave her a unique red-orange apricot tint. That was the first step Lucy took in becoming her most famous character, that wacky redhead we all know and love, Lucy Ricardo. Now, Lucy met Desi, as I said, in 1940 at RKO, when they filmed that fluffy college musical, Too Many Girls. After they married... Desi was playing with bandit gigs all over the country, including L.A., while Lucy's career had ratcheted up. That close attention, not being together when he was on the road, as I've said, his movie career basically never taking off. But a little show called I Love Lucy would change all that. So while MGM didn't use Lucy in films as it might have, and she did have a handful of great roles in Best Foot Forward, uh, Dugari Was a Lady, Without Love with Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn, where she stole the movie from them, and Easy to Wit. It was a big step in preparing her for what was to come. I wouldn't say at all that she was like, cruising out at an altitude and pretty content with her career when she met Desi. No, Lucy always wanted more. But more importantly, she was always learning and storing that knowledge for future use, and it would put her in good stead in the late 40s, and especially during the show in the 1950s. Yeah, and it's, it sounds like just from the amount of movies that she was doing and, and the type of movie, like moving up to, to MGM, like she, de- yeah, definitely wasn't at cruising altitude. Like it says in the movie, like, okay, I'm, this is what I'm always going to be. And I'm okay with that. So that's the impression I got from the movie was. I have never read that particular attitude and all the stuff I found out <laughs> Lucy and her career. Her attitude was I'm no more uh, full steam ahead. And it's, it's got, got to be better and I could do this and that, whatever. I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history. And that includes my own personal history, too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took on this day a few years ago? Well, I just had one pop up, and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four-hour drive to a state park. And it couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden, I had a huge unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then, because that would have relieved a lot of stress. Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under Podcast when you sign up, and it'll really help the show. True Story under Podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the 
must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. During one of the scenes in the movie, we see Lucy performing in a show called My Favorite Husband on CBS Radio. And then we, as the movie portrays it, they want to turn that into a television show. And she agrees as long as she can cast her real-life husband, Desi Arnaz, as her husband on the TV show. And she gets a lot of kickback for this. Uh, as the CBS exec in the movie says, and I'll quote here, uh, it says, we cannot have an all-American girl married to a man who is not American. And then Lucy points out that Desi is American. He was even a sergeant in the U.S. Army and served during the war. But he's also of Cuban descent. And so in the movie, they clearly don't like that idea. How did the movie do showing this transition from my favorite husband to I Love Lucy? Well, like a lot of things that happen in Lucy and Desi's lives, it was given the shortened pre- prefab version. I guess necessary because of time constrictions, but it skipped over a lot of important events in the pair's life. Lucy had tired of making movies by the late forties. Uh, she knew that MGM wasn't going to really do anything with her and that contract was over. So that were of little consequence to her career. So in 1947, she took a chance and uh, started a comedy called dream girl on a very successful national tour. She got rave reviews as a woman who daydreams her way into various scenarios. It was like a part that was made for her. And during the tour, Lucy discovered something that would impact her career in a great way. She loved performing in front of a live audience, loved making people laugh and reacting to their reactions. Everything she learned from Lloyd and Keaton, the comic timing, music props, slapstick was put into that play on stage. And the end result was her being offered her on radio show, the sitcom, My Favorite Husband, which, very importantly, was filled before a live audience, furthering Lucy's conviction that that was how she was meant to perform. Yes, since the radio show was a success, CBS Brass wanted, it was not CBS, they wanted to move it to TV. And yes, no one except Lucy and Desi wanted Desi to play her husband. As you said, as someone else said, who would believe why the executive asked that all-American Lucy would be married to a foreigner? To which Lucy would respond, but he is my husband. Lucy and Desi took their act on the road, a sort of a promise to CBS to show them that the public would love them or did love them. And in a vaudeville type review, they performed at movie theaters around the country. And it was a huge success, which led to the Isle of Lucy pilot and the eventual groundbreaking TV show. I don't think any of that was in the movie. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. And so, something I am curious about as you're, as you were saying that with, with her obviously not at cruising altitude, like we were talking about, how did she perceive the move from doing movies like this to then doing a radio show? Was that seen as kind of a step down in her eyes? Like her career was kind of moving backwards? Well, she knew that her, as I said, that her movie career was, was, was stagnant, let's say. Um, she had done radio for many years on different shows, different parts. She'd done uh, USO stuff. And so she was familiar with the medium, and I think she liked the, the sitcom that she was going to go to. I don't, so I don't think she considered this step down. The fact, again, that it was going to be before a live audience, that totally appealed to her after doing the show. So she did that, and then fortuitously, that led to the development of the TV show. 
Okay. Okay. That makes sense. If we go back to the movie, most of it does take place during one specific week during the filming of I Love Lucy. There's text on screen for each day. You know, Monday is the table read, Tuesday is blocking rehearsal, so on to the taping on Friday. We'll get to some of the things that the movie depicts. And, but I wanted to ask just the amount of things that happen in this week to me, as well as watching this, I was like, this just has to be Hollywood timing to have so many things happen in a single week. Is the movie actually showing an actual week or is it taking a bunch of different things and throwing them into a single week? No, it's totally what you just said. The single week format was more to make it easier to frame the entire story, I think, than the actual fact that everything in the movie happened during this one week. It most assuredly did not. They did, as you say, take different events and meld them into a week format, or as I like to say, a W-E-A-K format, (laughs) if you will, based on Lucy. I love Lucy's shooting schedule. They also threw in flashbacks, some of which, as I noted, were were absolutely historically not correct, making it even harder to follow Lucy and Desi's story in a linear way. So... I mean, I understand the show business constrictions, the constrictions of doing a a two hour, 15 minute or whatever movie, as opposed to, you know, anything longer or minis, whatever, but you still don't need to play with the facts. Right. Sure. Especially in that way. I mean, with the restriction of a medium like movie, right? You you are covering a lot of, you know, years of somebody's life in, in a couple hours, but with the way that they did it here, that's why I had to ask about the week thing, because it makes it seem like they're not covering years of somebody's life. Really? That they're covering a week. No, I think that's why they got the Lucy's movie career. So uh, wrong because they just needed to sort of condense it into these little pop, pop bites like, uh, Oh, Judy holiday got all the roles that she, that no, that's not true. <laughs> Uh, one of the things it does show during that week uh, that causes a lot of stress for Lucy, Desi, and really everyone on the show is when the movie depicts this rumor of Lucy being a member of the Communist Party. As the movie shows it, it comes from a radio program by Walter Winchell where he says, and I'll quote again something from the movie, uh, that one of television's most popular stars was confronted with her membership in the Communist Party, end quote. And according to the movie, Lucy never denies it. She says the man who raised her was her grandfather, Fred C. Hunt, and he was a member of the party. So in 1936, she checks the box to please him. How well did the movie do with the whole Lucille Ball being a member of the Communist Party storyline? Well, if you, will you allow me a little leeway here before I get to the actual Communist Party accusation? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so the first table read is shown early on. It's a Monday morning table read of that week's I Love Lucy script, Fred and Ethel fight, with everybody at the table except the stars. And there you see uh, Ali at Shawpat. I think that's how her name is pronounced. Jake Lacey and Tony Hale play 50s versions of Madeline Pugh and Bob Carroll Jr. and executive producer Jess Oppenheimer, including Nina Arianda and J.K. Simmons as Vivian Vance and William Frawley. They're arguing about seven-year-old Rusty Hamer on the Danny Thomas show being forced to sign a loyalty pledge in light of the ongoing Red Scare and the ridiculousness of it all. Frawley, who's ignoring Vance by reading the paper and not really listening to her, finally engages in conversation. I still have no idea what she's talking about, yielding one pretty funny exchange. Vance to Frawley, are you drunk? Frawley, sarcastic. Well, it's 10 a.m., Vivian, so you know, of course. And although that's cute, these kinds of exchanges, as far as I know, between Viv and Bill never occurred. Um, you know, they just didn't really interact with each other that way. But there's so much arguing between the cast, writers, and Oppenheimer, as I've noted, 
that the viewer can only come with the thought, at least in this retelling, that Jess, played by usually wonderful Tony Hale as a whiny, put-upon college senior trying to whip his annoying, disrespectful theater underclassmen into shape, is not really much in charge. As Pew basically tells him to shut up, I don't think that would have happened in real life. We yeah. his office where they're being grilled by attorneys and people from Philip Morris and CBS. Kidman does a palatable job of relating the story of how Lucy registered as a communist in 1936 to placate her socialist grandpa. But here, as in many other scenes, I was noticeably put off by Kidman's physical appearance as Lucy, in the sense that her face is too skinny or contoured and her body not voluptuous enough. Lucy's was way more filled out curvy at that time. Nicole delivers the story of Lucy's Communist Party membership very matter-of-factly to the men in the room, and though it's impossible to know exactly what happened in that room, if indeed it did happen like that in that room, I'd like to think that Lucy was likely a bit more emotional. As for Desi, uh, Javier Badem is perfunctory, very to the point, noting that after the Winchell broadcast, no one picked up the story. Lucy had already been cleared by HUAC. Very little emotion, more like a, this situation is nothing of a blowover thing. And okay, that's one way of playing it, but we'll, we'll, you know if Desi Arnaz, when it comes to this topic particularly, he was quite emotional, perhaps a bit lacking in emotional delivery. Desi was so proud to be an American and of the career that he was allowed to pursue as a foreigner in our country. He took this issue very seriously, more so than how it was played. So I guess you could say that they didn't blow it in recounting the communist reveal, but it's hard to confirm exactly what happened. And the lead performances, in my view, were likely not much the way that the understandably emotional real-life Lucy and Desi reacted. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, yeah, it, we don't know 100% what happens behind closed doors, but I like how you took context from the real people and how they probably would have actually been if they were in that sort of situation. It sounds like it would have, it would have been different than what we saw on screen. The real thing that saved Lucy was that by 1953, that show was already the super hit that it would stay for the next four years. And the public was really in love with all of them, not just Lucy and Desi, but Bib and Bill and anybody associated with the show. So it would have been very difficult because the way that Lucy did register as communist was an innocent thing. She did it for her grandfather it would have been really hard to convince the public that she was anything you know, mm. negative in, in that sense. That makes sense. There is another major event that happens in that same week that we're talking about in the movie. And it's when Lucy announces that she's pregnant, um, not on the show, but she announces it to Desi and then the staff kind of behind the scenes. And according to the movie, this is a big deal. The executives from CBS and Philip Morris seem to be concerned that people will wonder how Lucy got pregnant, thinking about the idea of Ricky and Lucy sleeping together. And that's just too much for TV. I think there's a, another quote I'll, I'll pull from the movie is from CBS executive Howard Winky in the movie. And he says, you know, quote, we'll be putting our foot down on this one. We can't do it. End quote. Did Lucy announce her pregnancy to the staff during this chaotic week like the movie shows? Uh, probably not. It was in 1953. That's when that particular scene took place. But during that same week as the Communist Party thing, I doubt it very much so. Uh, it was a revolutionary concept at the time, especially on TV's number one show. So naturally, there was major push, pushback from the network and sponsors. The movie kind of tells the actual story. But in the film, Sorkin gives the credit to Desi Arnaz. And 
Arnez was truly a te- television pioneer. You might even call him a genius in that meeting. He changed the way the industry made and produced television shows forever. He created the rerun. But Sorkin's felt as Lucy and Desi breaking the news to the writing staff and Oppenheimer, who aren't all that thrilled. After all, they might be fearful of their jobs since the idea could easily be nixed by the network or sponsors. Still, Desi is positive Lucy will have her baby. This is in the movie and that it will be filmed for TV as Lucy Ricardo's baby. However, in her own autobiography, Lucy's version of events is different. She says, and this is a quote, in May 1952, Desi and I both walked into Jess Oppenheimer's office. Elated, she wrote. Well, amigo, Desi told Jess, we just heard from the doctor. Lucy's having another baby in January, so we'll have to cancel everything. That's the end of the show. Jess sat looking at us silently. Then he remarked casually, I wouldn't suggest this to any other actress in the world, but why don't we continue the show and have a baby on TV? And the LA Times noted that CBS, and I'm sure the pronunciation of this, B-I-O-W agency, the one which represented a sponsor, Philip Morris, B-O, maybe, I don't know, weren't excited by the idea, but they went along with some conditions. The advertisers originally stipulated they would only agree to one or two episodes about the pregnancy. Arnez wrote a letter to Philip Morris chairman, Alfred Lyons, reminding the executive of the success the show had delivered to date under their creative decision-making and suggested, not so subtly, that any changes to that now would warrant a shift in culpability for any subsequent failures of the show because of it. And if I may be permitted to quote my book, the final word on this, it's from Lucy A to Z, the Lucille Ball Encyclopedia. When Lucy became pregnant during the second season of her hit show, exec producer Jess Oppenheimer and Arnez hit on the idea of writing it into the script as a way of keeping the show going without interruption. At that time, performers couldn't even say the word pregnant on TV. It was expected or expecting was about as risque as it got. Arnez smartly decided to give script approval to a select group of clerics of all faiths and thus won the CBS network's okay to go ahead with the storyline. The night Lucy gave birth to little Ricky on the air, January 19, 1953, Desi Arnaz Jr. was delivered by cesarean section in Los Angeles. The birth of little Ricky episode was the sitcom's most watched ever, eclipsing President Eisenhower's inauguration the next day, and remained a benchmark for most sets tuned to one show until the 60s. It garnered 44 million viewers. 72% of every TV home at the time, a figure that would be coveted today by any TV executive and virtually impossible to achieve, except for an event like the Super Bowl, due to the fractured nature of the viewing audience, thanks to the huge amount of viewing choices now available, not just three networks, for example, but streaming and all that too. And it remains one of the most watched episodes of primetime television ever broadcast. Years later, Arnest learned that Philip Morris's chairman, Lyons, sent out a confidential memo to his staff to elevate concern. Don't f*** around the Cuban. <laughs> I think they, they show that in the movie, don't they? At some point, I seem to remember him saying that. <laughs> so, so don't. Now, I was, I was going to ask with the popularity of that, like if the sponsors like Philip Morris and stuff didn't want, they didn't want that, but then they pushed for it and they got it and it was so successful did that have a big impact outside? I know the movie doesn't really touch on any of this because it just focuses on on uh, I Love Lucy. Did it have an impact on how they were able to do episodes in the future, like without as much push, pushback, since obviously they got it right? 
Yeah, absolutely. That was a, a total thing. But I think more importantly, Lucy and the big picture of Desi, a little picture of Lucy made the first national cover of TV Guide. And the headline was Lucy's $50 million baby. Now, all the merchandising for the kid and for the Ricardos and for the family and furniture, paint, dolls, living room sets, etc. That all speaks to the enormous influence that Lucy and Desi as the Ricardos and their show had on the American public. And I don't think anyone was going to screw around with that. Money talks, I guess, at the end of the day, right? (laughs) Throughout most of the movie, there is some tension that we see between William Frawley, who plays Fred Mertz, and Vivian Vance, who plays his wife, Ethel Mertz, in I Love Lucy. William is drinking all the time. You mentioned earlier, you know, it's like 10 a.m., yeah. Of course, I'm going to be drunk. And, and then Vivian goes on a diet to make herself feel better because she's being cast as someone married to her grandpa, as she says in the movie, pointing out the age difference between Fred and Ethel's characters in the show. Was there really that tension between those two actors that we see in the movie? Yes, it's pretty well known. and It's been written about a lot. Frawley was known to be a heavy drinker, which, as you said, I alluded to already at that table. And not much of a team player. It's reported that he would cut out his lines in the script so that he would know his lines. Then when it came to rehearsing and then filming and the lines got huge laughs, he really wouldn't understand why they did because he didn't know what the second was. (laughs) (laughs) His drinking, that was just a a weird thing that he did. For all the pledge to Desi Arnaz before they would sign him to the show, that he would never let his drinking interfere with his performance. And as he said, the first time it's done is you're out of here. For all indications, it never did. Finally, uh, it creates the fiction, imme- friction immediately that you've heard of between Vance and Foley. And the story is he overheard her complaining early on, maybe the first season, about playing the wife of such an old man. He's old enough to be my father during early rehearsals, and it was all downhill from there. Um, they were not friendly off camera. Vivian, for her part, could not stand being identified as the wife of someone who looked and acted like Frawley, who was indeed old enough to be her father. I think grandfather is stretching it a bit. She especially despised having to kiss him or climb into bed with him. But they were both professional enough and fond enough of their paychecks, apparently, to keep all of that off camera. And the real-life tension between the two actually worked to help create the realness of the quarrelsome marriage of the Mertzes. Okay. Okay. So they, they kind of played off it, even, even though <laughs> he may not have known why it was so funny. I like that <laughs> about cutting out the, the lines. Well, you know, they were offered a spinoff at the end of the half hour show or maybe at oh, really? the end of the hour show, just featuring the Mertzes, but Vivian refused it. And that's really why he began to hate her after that. He wanted, he would, he would have done it and it would have made them both a lot of money, but Vivian Vance was just no. That was it. She wasn't going to act with him. I want to ask about there. There's an episode where they're filming throughout the week in the movie. And that episode, according to the movie is directed by Donald glass. And the movie makes it very clear that Lucy does not like him as a director. Uh, Everything is going on that week that of course we know now was not actually happening that week, but in the movie, she takes it upon herself to start to direct a lot of the scenes. At one point we see she even calls in William and Vivian down to the stage at 2 a.m. to practice the dinner scene to get it just right. As I was watching the movie, I wasn't sure if they were trying to really suggest that 
Lucy was only being so picky because of the stress of everything going on that seems they're saying is going on in this week, or if they were trying to suggest that she was always that picky about getting everything right, that she would basically take over directing duties if she felt the director wasn't doing their job. Right. Was Lucy that involved in the direction and production of episodes as the movie shows? Um, did Lucy need to be so much in charge, even at that point in her career, that she could corral her co-stars and tell them to do anything at any time of the day and they do it? This movie makes a hard point about that. Certainly that control trait has been remarked on by many co-stars and friends during Lucy's post I Love Lucy career, The Lucy Show and Here's Lucy. This might be the one thing this movie got somewhat right. Though maybe her saying to Bill and Viv after giving them direction on a particular scene that I am the biggest asset in the portfolio of the Columbia Broadcasting System, Philip Morris Cigarettes at Westinghouse, is taking that a bit too far. Still, Bill does tell her before the show, in this fictional exchange, I believe, that after her notes, the dinner scene is inarguably better. But the bottom line was, Lucy knew her stuff, from how to get a laugh, timing how long to wait until continuing, where one's best lighting was, where your key shot was, the use of props, and on and on, all from her 20-year, in quotes, apprenticeship in the movies. When she directed people, and I mean, not as the director, but on the set, including big stars like her friends, Jack Benny and George Burns. On her future shows, they may not have liked it, but 99% of the time, Lucy was right. So I also write about this issue in Lucy Agency. Um, Bill Asher, yeah, the William Asher who directed Bewitched later on and married its star, Elizabeth Montgomery, for example, found out on his first day of work that rumors of Lucille testing her coworkers to see how much they could take were true. Yeah, sure took over directing I Love Lucy after the first season and was the director for the whole series through its conclusion, directing a total of 102 episodes. Asher remembered the encounter as Lucy giving him too much direction. Lucy, Asher recalled, saying during a Jamestown, New York Lucy Festival in the, I guess, early to mid-2000s, if you want to direct, go ahead, and you won't have to pay anyone. At which point, he says, Lucy broke down in tears and ran off the set, and Asher retired to the men's room because he didn't yet have an office. He finally returned to the set and met Desi, who started yelling at him in Spanish until Asher said, Desi, give it to me in English, please. After hearing the story, Desi was very understanding, and again, this all according to Asher, and agreed with Asher, but told him to find Lucy in her dressing room, bring her back to the set. Asher says, I did. She and I hugged and cried for a few minutes. Then Lucy pulled herself together and went back to work. After that, as she concluded, I never had another problem with Lucy. So I think a lot of the time she was testing people to see how far she could go and how much they would take. Some people were okay with that. Some people just sloughed it off. Like Jack Benny, who once, I think when he was on the Lucy show and she was haranguing him about something, because calm down, honey, it's your show, okay? And some people walked off. Joan Blondell, after Lucy, uh, she was being sort of auditioned to, to take the place of Vivian Bass, either in late in Here's uh, the Lucy Show or on Here's Lucy. And in the episode, in this one episode, uh, apparently Lucy didn't like what she did, so she mined flushing a toilet, like that it was crap, I guess. Well, Blondell cursed her out, walked off the set, never came back. 
So there was all different kinds of reactions to what Lucy's hard persona was. Was that more after she became so famous? I mean, you mentioned that that scene where she talks about, you know, she's the biggest asset in the portfolio. Did she did she feel that sort of stress that she had this successful show with I Love Lucy and then um, outside the timeline of the movie, but, you know, with the shows after I Love Lucy that she wasn't able to get that same thing back or she felt she had to try to get that same success? Yes, I think absolutely. And um, after Desi was on the Lucy show for the first like 13 or 15 episodes, and then he left and then she ended up buying his shares with Desi Lewa became the first woman to control the studio and all that. Um, it's a lot of responsibility and she had to green light shows and tell people no and, and put people out of work. And she hated that, but she had to do it and she did it. And she famously told Carol Burnett, who's a good friend of hers, that kid is when they put the S at the end of my name, Lucille Balls. So I didn't like strong women back then. Her too, I guess. <laughs> Well, it makes sense though. I mean, if she's having to do the business side of things and she's, you know, as, as an actress and just as a, as a creative, sometimes the business side is, it's not what they like to do. I mean, yeah, and fair enough. I mean, it, it's not easy. No, it was sure. but she did, a, she did a great job and yeah. she was the first woman to handle that role in a studio the size of Desi Liu, which was pretty substantial at that time. So. Yeah. Got to give her credit. Yeah. For sure. Near the end of the movie, Desi's plan to make the whole Lucy being a communist in the press go away is to invite the press to a taping of the show. Before they begin, he shows everyone the Herald Express newspaper in the movie. It has big red letters. Uh, it says Lucille Ball, a red. I, I think it, even there was a line of dialogue. It was like, I didn't even know the newspaper had red print. Um, the, the, the studio audience there gasps when they see the headline. And then he takes a phone call from a man that verifies that the FBI has no reason to believe Lucy is a communist. And that man identifies himself as J. Edgar Hoover. The plan works. Everyone cheers Lucy. The press writes about it. And according to the movie, they save the show. Did Desi Arnaz really talk to Hoover on the phone to confirm that Lucy wasn't a communist for the live studio audience like we see in the end of the movie? Right. Um, according to many sources, Desi did call Hoover in earshot of the studio audience. And some also claim in front of a group of gathered reporters and that the FBI director stated, like you said, your wife is cleared of any charges, 100% clear. But other respected sources like the LA Times say no. And I'm quoting here. In reality, there was no call from Hoover. The ball's name was cleared before an episode filming. Representative Donald L. Jackson, chairman of the House Un-American Activities Committee, held a press conference in Hollywood at a hotel room and publicly absolved Ball of any wrongdoing. As the film shows, Arnez did address the studio audience before the filming that night, reading from a speech he typed. What he said was, Lucy has never been a communist, not now and never will be. I was kicked out of Cuba, he continued, because of communism. We despise everything about it. Lucy is as American as Bernie Baruch and Ike Eisenhower. And finally, as he wrote in his memoir, he introduced Lucy before the taping and noted, now I want you to meet my favorite wife, my favorite redhead. In fact, that's the only thing read about her, and even that's not legitimate. Lucy Ball. And that Lucy, with tears in her eyes, came out and received a standing ovation from the studio audience. So hmm. that seems like they, they picked 
pieces of of things but yeah yeah it sounds like it was a little different than than that just a little yeah (laughs) at the very end of the movie right again it's around the same time like as as they're doing the show like lucy confronts desi about him cheating on her she has some lipstick on a handkerchief and i think he says something about oh that's yours and then she pulls out another handkerchief with lipstick and you know this one's mine and then finally he admits that he is cheating he says really meant nothing. They were just call girls. And then she says, they have a show to do. So we'll forget about this for half an hour. And that's how the movie ends. There's some text at the very end that says, uh, March 3rd, 1960, Lucy filed for divorce from Desi the morning after their final performance together. So the impression that I got from the movie was their marriage only stayed as long as the TV show did. So maybe it was more about a business relationship than a true loving marriage at the end. Is that right? I don't think so. No, there was actually real true love between Lucy and Desi. But like you said, by the mid fifties, Paul had had enough of Arnez is drinking and philandering. Still dissolving. I love Lucy would have put so many people out of work and caused so many problems. And Lucy also truly loved that show and performing. She loved performing and rehearsing for it every week. It was kind of a tonic to her. So she stayed on long enough to see I Love Lucy finish its run and cement its place in history. In fact, it's been noted that Lucy and Desi were happiest and only really civil to each other during this time when the cameras were rolling and they weren't Lucy and Desi, but rather Lucy and Ricky. And in Mm -hmm. truth, confidential rant, Desi's wild night out, that was the headline. In the early years of their marriage, before the launch of I Love she, Lucy wrote in her autobiography, while I was knocking myself out with movie making and bond tours, my marriage was crashing fast. Desi's nightlife had even blase Hollywood talking. So everybody knew about it. Confidential magazine published a story about a Palm Springs weekend of his, and this too hurt and humiliated deeply. During the summer of 1944, Desi stopped coming home. One night I tossed sleeplessly until dawn, wondering where our marriage had gone awry and what I had done wrong. And this was the mid forties, mind you. So they, but they did reconcile instead of divorcing. Uh, but Desi's self-destructive behavior continued. It got worse. As he got more successful, it became worse. Years later, confidential ran another nasty piece headlined, does Desi really love Lucy? Reporting quotes, all of Desi's indiscretions on his January 1955 cover. Now at that point, I love Lucy was in its fifth next to last half hour season. And by the way, the series was the first to go out while it was still number one ratings. So Brad Shortell, reporter for Confidential, wrote, Behind the scenes, Arnez is a Latin Lothario, loves Lucy most of the time, but by no means all of the time. But there's this interesting tidbit. Desi told one of his Palm Springs side dishes, according to the article, that he still loved Lucy. This rings true, as I noted before, throughout their lives and even after their divorce. Desi and Lucy remained very friendly and relied on each other for advice on different things and were called the loves of each other's lives by close friends. And then again, later, People Magazine, a little more respected than Confidential, ran a cover piece after Lucy died called The Untold Story of Lucy and Desi, The Booms, The Brawls, The Other Women. It began by noting the irony of Lucy and Desi meeting on the set of an RKO film titled Too Many Girls. In the piece, Lucy's longtime publicist, Charles Pomerantz, recounted his client's reaction to the article and noted that she did it with humor. He says, I gave an advanced copy of the confidential story to Desi, and Lucy said, I want to read this story. It was during a rehearsal day, 
She went into her dressing room. Everyone was frozen on the set. She finally came out, tossed the magazine to Desi and said, oh, hell, I could tell him worse than that. And I Love Lucy director, William Asher, told people when they were having the baby and we did the show about the birth of little Ricky, Desi was terribly emotional about her. He really was crazy about her. You could feel how they felt. And Madeline Pugh Davis added in the same article, Desi was a charmer. We used to call him the Cuban arm because he'd put his arm around you and say, listen, amigo, and you were done for. But the reality was this, sadly, according to I Love Lucy biographer, Bard Andrews, who wrote, I think, what first book was on I Love Lucy. She told me that by 1956, it wasn't even a marriage. And they were just going through a routine for the children. She told me that for the last five years of their marriage, it was just booze and broads. That was in her divorce papers, as a matter of fact. So Lucy and Desi did remain married for five more years, finally divorcing in 1960, as you noted, after 20 years of marriage. In November 62, Ball bought Arnez's shares of Desi Lou at $3 million and took over the company, becoming the first woman to share a major Hollywood studio. It was thanks to Lucy that Star Trek, Mission Impossible, and Manix with Greenlit got their chances to shine and become classics. It's, it sound, sounds like their marriage, yeah, kind of went did go downhill towards, towards the end it, there, for it, sure. It, yeah. Lucy tried her hardest, I think, and she forgave a lot. And I think the worst part of it for her was the public humiliation. Yeah. Well, they were, I mean, the, the number one show. So, I mean... It, the, I don't know if they called them paparazzi back then, but I mean, just the amount of public spotlight that they'd have. Yeah, like, it's it surprising, right? That it was basically only confidential and other spurious magazines that were even worse than confidential that would dare to publish anything like that about because they were so loved. Was confidential kind of like a tabloid then? It was. It wasn't okay. a tabloid size. It was a magazine, but it was a big red logo. Yeah, okay. Lines, okay. It was very uh, tabloidy. In content. Yeah, I, I don't remember the exact dialogue, but I remember some dialogue from the movie where uh, I think it was Desi that was talking about, um, gave the impression that Confidential was not as reputable of a uh, news source. And it's like, oh, it's, you know, it's, a, it's, uh, no. I, I got the impression that they're, they were kind of the grocery store tabloid type news source of. But at um, one time, it was one of the most popular magazines in the country. Hmm. So lots of people read it, but they didn't go, they didn't read it for regular news. They read it for Hollywood gossip celebrity yeah, gossip yeah how well do you think the movie did with uh, nicole kidman's portrayal of lucy and javier bardem as desi arnaz okay as the star duo enter the room table read starts at the beginning of the film there's a lot of a lot more spiteful backbiting that's what I'm, i was saying before there was just like what kind of a set does this depict <laughs> uh not one of them is really portrayed as actually likable although javier bardem as desi starts to get into his character about 15 minutes in, he addressed them and says, I'm the president of Desi Lou speaking to you right now for the next 30 minutes. All I want to hear are words that are on the script in front of you. I kind of like that. That was authority that felt like something Desi might do. But then as the scene shifts from the table read to the actors in black and white doing scenes actually in the show, finish out, we hear Kidman's Lucy Ricardo voice. And it took me right out of the film, just as her not quite there look as Lucy did many times. It was obvious Kidman was trying to get a higher register as Lucy, but it didn't work for me. Her entire Lucy Ricardo performance at the start is too cute. Yeah, it's obvious that she studied Lucy's mannerisms as Lucy Ricardo and how Lucy spoke and moved and her facial expression, etc. There's some work that that's okay, but after all, Kidman's a good actress, so you would expect her to do that research. 
What she doesn't capture is the essence of either Lucille Ball or Ricardo to that point and for most of the films, I think. Kidman does a bit better as the movie goes on, playing Lucy, recreating the grape-stopping episode, and Lucy tells the truth, and especially in the Fred and Ethel White episode, where for a minute or so, she totally gets Lucy's voice right as the character. Or Deb is even less convincing at, at the next juncture as Desi, the musician slash entertainer, looking dumpy mm-hmm. and unenergetic, definitely not sexy, while recreating She Could Shake Her Maracas, the nightclub scene where Lucy meets Desi, and they got it wrong ending, as I've already said. Bardem is a great actor, but he displays none of Desi's easy charm and grace. Bardem is more appealing as Desi singing Babalu at Ciro's, but he still can't quite capture the sexiness, realness, and emotional impact of the actual Desi performing his signature song. And Kidman, a great actress as Lucy, made up with the black eye or whatever, is so nasty and off-putting verbally, almost dark, playful would have been the way to go you have to wonder why would desi ever have been interested in her i unfortunately or none of us can go back in time to witness real life versions of these events but i have seen i'm sure you've seen everyone's seen lucy and desi together many times in various film uh, appearances either game shows publicity events or movie premieres and their easy genuine banter was nothing like what is portrayed in this movie lucy and desi's combustible attraction Physically and emotionally, it was a very important component in Lucy and Desi and Lucy and Ricky relationships. Almost everyone who knew them in real life, as I've said, including daughter Lucy Arnaz, maintains that despite their divorce, they remain the loves of each other's lives. It's not really evident here in this film. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Would you say that that's one of the bigger inaccuracies in the film is how they were portrayed? Or is there something else that you would kind of just stood out as one of the most inaccurate things about the film. Yes, absolutely. But just the alarming liberties taken with the truth in general, facts that were out there for anyone, especially a TV luminary like Aaron Sorkin, fine. They were not hidden. They were ignored. They may have nailed a few things. The actors played Vivian Rance and Lynn Frawley were great, although I doubt that Frawley had such a close relationship with Lucy as intimated by several conversations that they showed. She and Vivian were way closer. Nina Arianda and J.K. Simmons as Viv and Bill fared best out of all the actors, each putting quick and easy shades into their characters that mostly rang true. Watching Simmons get up from the reading table and getting and flipping his hat on was akin to watching Bill Frawley. And Arianda very subtly conveyed Bats' real-life agony at playing the dishwater blonde frumpy Ethel as she breathes in a red cocktail dress that Lucy not too subtly indicates is not for Ethel to wear. The Mertz actors really got their counterparts dislike of each other, coupled with the willingness to do what they had to, to make the show. The scene between Lucy and Viv just before the filming of the episode was sweet and touching. Both actresses rocked, and it got better when Bill entered the soundstage. By the time the movie got to filming the actual episode, Kidman and Bardem had grown on me a little. The movie picks up noticeably in the last half hour, because the two out actors are not trying to be the characters. They inhabit them more than they had previously. So I think being the Ricardos, it's not a big sloppy mess, but it played with the facts and there's no reason on earth it should have. Lucy and Desi are two of the most written about people who ever lived. There's plenty of documentation on anything you'd care to know, including my best-selling book, Lucy A to Z, the Lucille Ball Encyclopedia. The bottom line was 
I didn't like it. Lots of things were wrong or off. A fewer, some fewer things were right, good. If you're a Lucy completist, well, you'll have to see it, of course, but we're still waiting for a definitive biography of Lucy and Desi played by real actors. Or are we? Actually, I'm not. I'm more than content with Lucy and Desi and Bill and Meb we have in countless hours of film that never get old. May they continue to keep us laughing. Best medicine, right? For all time. Yeah. Yeah. My final question for you might be the most difficult one yet. If if you could change one thing about the movie to make it a little closer to what really happened, what would that one thing be? Well, it's not difficult at all, but could it be two things? And this is aside oh, sure. from all the historical inaccuracies I've mentioned. But there are two major things that would have made an infinitely better film. I would recast it, possibly with Kate Blanchett, who was originally attached to the project, but certainly with an actress more physically akin to the real Lucille Ball. I did it with Desi. Cast a Latino actor more closely resembling Desi Arnaz physically and temperamentally. An extremely handsome, sexy, and disarming fellow. Something that Bardem, as good an actor as he is, could capture. Interesting. Yeah, I mean that make that makes sense. That would be it's it, it's interesting to hear you talk about that because Nicole Kidman and, and Javier Bardem they are they're good. They they're good at what they do, but Absolutely. Absolutely. they just didn't capture the essence. It sounds yeah. like they didn't. They were, I don't think they were right for either either of them was yeah. right for that particular role. Yeah. I can understand why they would have taken it because it's a very high profile project. But everyone that's tried to play Lucy over the years in various TV movies and even on sitcoms. Nobody can get it right because there's no other Lucy. There's no other yeah. Debbie. There's no other Ethel or, or Fred either. So why not watch the real thing? Who needs a biography? There you go. Watch the real thing. <laughs> there's so much written about it, including stuff by yeah. me. So yeah. it was uh, speaking of which, th- thank you so much for coming on to chat about being the Ricardos. You have written a lot about Lucille Ball. So for listeners who want to learn more about her, can you give a recommendation for which of your books to start with and where they can get a copy of it? I'd love to. Lucy A to Z, the Lucille Ball Encyclopedia, is my magnum opus, if you will, my greatest achievement, as my dear late friend, author Craig Hamrick, used to call it. It's extremely comprehensive, has pictures and interviews with people who knew and worked with Lucy, and it's arranged alphabetically. So it's not like your typical biography. You can jump around from entry to entry, let one thing lead you to another. It's an index, so you can follow whichever your favorite performer is. And it has separate bios of all of the big four, as I call them, Lucy, Desi, William Frawley, and Vivian Vance. And there was just so, I mean, when I went to the uh, New York uh, Library of the Performing Arts, which is where I did most of this research, and I asked for the files on Lucille Ball, the press clippings, huge dozens of files that were like two or three inches thick or more that obviously haven't been looked at in years. And my feeling was when I, I saw a lot of the stuff, I was like, well, whether Lucy loved badminton or not, you know, there's a picture of her playing. And I'm like, you know, if I don't know this stuff, then a lot of her fans aren't aware of it anymore either. So that's why I went ahead and did the book. So there was so much info and press clippings left over from the original and trivia that was just hanging out in my brain. I channeled it into four other books. The Lucy Book of Lists, that was in honor of her 100th birthday. Uh, Lucy in Print, which covers print articles, didn't make it into Lucy A to C, plus reports on two little-known plays written about I Love Lucy, Vivian Vance. The Lucy I Love Lucy play was at a time when you had a successful entity and some medium 
And they just automatically like wrote a play about it. Like, let's see if we can make this a success. It's really interesting. I found it at the uh, New York Public Library. And I stayed there for half an hour and Xerox the whole thing so I could read it. It was hysterical. <laughs> and then the final book I wrote, The Comic DNA of Lucille Ball, Interpreting the Icon. Now, you can find them all at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Goodreads, or any online bookseller, as well as a few brick-and-mortar stores. But if they don't carry them, just go up to the counter, ask them to order the books, point them to my Amazon page, and you can buy them that way. And I'll make sure to include a link to them in the show notes for this episode, too, if you're listening and looking for those. Thank you. Thank you again so much for your time, Michael. It was my pleasure. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. I'd like to thank Michael Carroll once again for sharing his knowledge about the world of Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz that we saw in Being the Ricardos. If you want to learn more about the true story, definitely pick up a copy of Lucy A to Z, the Lucille Ball Encyclopedia. As always, you can find links to that book and more of Michael's work in the show notes for this episode, as well as on the show's home on the web, based on a true story podcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. And as a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Desi really did make William Frawley pledge that his drinking would not be a problem with his performance. Number two, Lucy was playing a burlesque girl beat up by her pimp when she first met Desi in 1942. Number three, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz eloped six months after meeting. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's start with number one. Desi really did make William Frawley pledge that his drinking wouldn't be a problem with his performance. That is true. As we learned, William Frawley, who played Fred Mertz in I Love Lucy, was a heavy drinker like we see in the movie. And Desi Arnaz really did make him pledge that drinking wouldn't interfere with his performance. And from what we can tell, it never did. That brings us to number two. Lucy was playing a burlesque girl beat up by her pimp when she first met Desi in 1942. That's the lie. First, Lucy and Desi actually met in 1940 and not 1942. But also, as we learned from Michael, the line from Being the Ricardos that talks about how Lucy was unrecognizable because she was playing a burlesque girl character who was beaten up by her pimp. Michael clarified that's pulled from what Desi said about how Lucy looked but it's not at all the real reason why Lucy got her fake black eye when the two met. So a pretty important difference that the movie got wrong. That means number three is also true. Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz eloped six months after meeting. As Michael pointed out, when Lucy and Desi met, it was love at first sight. They eloped six months after meeting, and so there was true love there at first. Of course, as we learned over the years, Lucy got tired of Desi's drinking and flandering. If this podcast was entertaining, if you find value in what you're listening to, if you like what I do and you'd like to give back, you can do that over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon. <laughs>